Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Bash. And I'm Melody Edwards. Coming up on the show, Wyoming has a funding shortfall, but teachers are stepping up to make sure their students don't feel the effects of budget cuts. It's not my job to join in the chaos. It's my job to calm them. The 2017 total solar eclipse wowed big crowds in Casper. Once you see one, you gotta see another. (laughs) And we'll learn what Rock Springs is doing to draw more attention downtown why that has traditionally been a challenge. They live close to where the mine entrances were, so nothing was square or planned or straight. Those stories plus conversations about the possibility of alien life, the debate over raising taxes, and what cultural events are planned at the University of Wyoming this fall. It's all coming up on Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. Welcome to Open Spaces. From Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. Last year, 20 of Wyoming's 48 school districts reported they had to reduce their supply budgets, and this year that number jumped to 38. It's according to survey results compiled by the state legislature. As a result, parents may see a longer list of back-to-school supplies they're asked to purchase. Wyoming Public Radio's education reporter Tennessee Watson discovered a lot of teachers are pitching in with their personal funds, too. It's back to school time, and Kaylee Kennick is putting the finishing touches on her classroom at Linford Elementary in West Laramie. Come on in. How are you? Fine. How are you? Good. Crazy right now? In an hour, Ms. Kennick's students will enter their fourth grade classroom for the first time, and she wants them to feel welcome. Today is meet and greet, and when they come in, they'll have on their desks a little package of cookies that says, you're one smart cookie, I'm so glad you're in my class. Um, It's just kind of a little gift from me to let them know that I'm so excited that they're here, and I can't wait to grow and learn and spend time with them this year. That doesn't stop with the cookies. Kenick has overhauled her classroom to make it feel homey. She's repainted the traditional green chalkboards in fun colors, and she's filled the shelves above the classroom sink with framed sayings like, Home Sweet Classroom. Kenick is a self-described girly girl, but there's more to her passion for interior decorating than just making things cute. She uses lamps to create a mellowing energy. Some of her students really need that. If I want them to kind of come down a little bit from being really high energy, I will turn all the lights off and just have the lamps in the natural light, the curtains open. Kenick does get a budget from the district for the classroom supplies her students use, but the special touches that make her classroom more comfortable come out of her own pocket. This might seem frivolous, but Kenick says it's essential. She spends about $200 a year on snacks alone to feed kids who are in a hurry and miss breakfast or for kids from low-income families where there just isn't enough food at home. According to a national survey of educators conducted last year, teachers spend an average of $530 of their own money, and that average goes up close to $700 in high-poverty schools. Kenick says with budget cuts, she's spending more. You just never really know what's going to happen. Try to plan for it, I guess, as best you can. She stocks up on extra essentials to buffer her students from that uncertainty. What this is getting at is that teachers do a lot of things that are really, really intuitive, and they may or may not realize that a lot of this is grounded in research. Scott Chamberlain is a professor at the University of Wyoming, and he specializes in educational psychology. He studies how kids feel in the class and how it impacts their learning. Um, What the research shows is that kids are dialed into the fact that, oh, my teacher really cares about me. And Chamberlain says that has a direct influence on students' cognitive energy, or the energy they invest in thinking. One of the things that we know is that kids come to school and have a lot of what we refer to as out-of-school factors. They're donating a lot of cognitive energy to kind of worrying or being concerned with factors that you and I look at and we're like, oh, that can't be the case. They could be concerned about their family's financial stability or whether there'll be anything to eat. Chamberlain says in some places, kids might have to navigate violence on their way home or face it when they get there. The more and more negative out-of-school factors that kids have, the less inclined they are to learn when in the classroom. But Chamberlain says teachers like Kaylee Kennick, who create spaces where students feel calm and safe, can ease their students' worries, so they have more cognitive energy for learning. Kathy Vetter is president of the Wyoming Education Association. 
She says over her 30-year career as a Wyoming teacher, she and her colleagues often spent their own money, even when their salaries weren't going up. They just are willing to ensure that their classrooms are inviting, good for learning, are just a great environment so that they make sure that every student they have is getting the best, highest quality education they can provide. Vetter says there are projects that help support schools by gathering donations from community members and local businesses, but more populated areas might have an advantage. And then you go to a really small community and they may not have the businesses there that are able to say, hey, we'll match whatever the community pitches in. She says despite teachers' best efforts, those kinds of statewide disparities are hard for them to make up for. But she says Wyoming does have a good funding model designed to equally distribute resources across the state. That is, if the legislature can figure out how to fund it. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Tennessee Watson. Are you a K-12 teacher spending your own money in your classroom? Tweet at Wyoming Public Radio using the hashtag WyoTeachersGiveBack and let us know how much you spent. And you can send a picture of something special you've done in your classroom. Early this summer, lawmakers were looking at a massive shortfall in education funding and overall revenue. That pushed lawmakers into a lengthy discussion about possible tax hikes. The idea was to hold a number of hearings over the summer on a variety of proposals and then pass bills that would raise $100 million, $200 million, and $300 million. But as Wyoming Public Radio's Bob Beck reports, a funny thing happened on the way to passing tax legislation. The state's revenue picture improved, and enthusiasm for passing a tax hike has waned. The July revenue report showed an improvement of over $140 million from what was previously projected. It showed capital gains were also soaring. It's not a boom, but things look a lot better. The state still has issues funding education, local government, and other key services, something not lost on Governor Matt Mead. You know, I want a great education system in the state of Wyoming. I want great roads in the, in the state of Wyoming. I want uh, safety and security. And if we are not uh, able to, to provide those things, that's exactly why the legislature is now having this discussion. Meade has not called for tax hikes, but he has wanted options on the table. He says the state made massive cuts last year, and he does not want to cut budgets further. House Minority Floor Leader Kathy Connolly says the boom-bust cycle that caused the situation is bad for Wyoming. She says they need tax revenue to even things out. So even though the revenue streams that are coming in as of the July report are better than what had been anticipated, we still have a boom-bust cycle that needs to be addressed. We are wholly dependent on the extractive industries if we choose to do nothing. Connolly even has some proposals. She wants taxes on tobacco and alcohol to stop being the lowest in the country. And she wants other companies who operate in Wyoming to pay more, especially those that are located out of state. We need to switch our reliance on oil, gas, coal, and think about other methods of corporate taxation. When you look at all the elements that go into corporate taxation, we are at the bottom of every one of them. Connolly serves on the Revenue Committee that's looking at all the proposals. House Committee Chairman Mike Madden says the state does need to find a way to stabilize its income, and they need a strong source of revenue like a sales tax. Madden says his committee will bring legislation for lawmakers to consider, but he has no idea whether they will be supported. If the Wyoming Taxpayers Association has its way, nothing will pass. Buck McVeigh is a former state budget officer for the state of Wyoming, and his organization believes more cuts are in order. We're not supporting anything at this point in terms of taxes until we really see a true across-the-board effort from all, all branches of government trying to reduce spending needs. McVeigh's group has supported reducing the burden that the energy industry pays in taxes and to have people pay more. But even that idea is simmering as they look for more cuts. Senate President Eli Bebout likes to say he's just one of the senators who oppose tax hikes. But being the Senate president gives him a lot of sway. Bebout led the Senate in an effort to try and cut education spending, something he wants to see more of. Bebout says Wyoming overspent on education, and he wants to rein that in. To a level where 
A, we can afford it, B, it's comparable to what other people are paying in the region, and C, to get the results that we think we should get but we're not getting. And until we get to that number, I'm against any kind of tax increase. Bebout does agree that the state could use more stable revenue. He'd like to see that money come from new business growth. Bebout is excited about the governor's effort to diversify the economy. He says that's something the legislature needs to invest in. I'm optimistic we'll make some progress, but it's going to be a longer-term thing to get to where I'd like to see us. Bebout does support some taxes to help with building new schools and to help municipalities raise money. But he wants lawmakers to give local people the authority to take care of those things themselves. Senator Kale Case of Lander has proposed a wind energy tax, but he generally opposes tax hikes. However, he admits that someday the state will need more money. So we are coming to a point where the legislature is going to have to do something. It's going to probably be, be in combination with other robust cuts. And it actually, I don't, I'm not sure it's going to happen this year in this session. I think we might be riding through another session before we get, you know, a real significant tax proposal that's moving through both houses. Case predicts that will be a sales tax or removing the sales tax exemption from food, something Bebout also supports. House Minority Leader Kathy Connolly remains optimistic. So uh, if I was to bet you $200 that no tax measure will pass this year, <laughs> would, would you take that bet? <laughs> I would take that bet. You know, I am a Democrat in the Wyoming legislature. I am the eternal optimist. And it's not that I want more taxes, but I believe it's truly the right thing to do and that we as a legislature will do the right thing. You really believe that? I do. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Bob Beck. When we come back, we'll hear from Treasurer Mark Gordon on the state of Wyoming's economy, and we'll take a closer look at Rock Springs' effort to revitalize its downtown. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. One reason some lawmakers have backed off on their support of tax increases is because Wyoming is making a lot of money from investments. Unrealized gains sit around $900 million, and even the energy industry has had a slight uptick. State Treasurer Mark Gordon joins us to say that it's true things are good, but he also says that lawmakers should be careful about using investment money versus a more stable source of revenue. What that's translated into on a sort of a base level is that uh, there's generally more optimism in the market. You know, of course, when uh, President Trump was elected, I think there was a great deal of enthusiasm. We saw it here in Wyoming that the regulatory burdens of the Obama administration were going to start to dissipate and and we would see a kind of a general uptick. And we've seen that. I mean, the market's up uh, remarkably high. Uh, there is some cause uh, for alarm. Uh, you know, that has been expressed over the year uh, about, well, the market's reached an all-time high. It mm -hmm. seems to be reaching an all-time high again today and the next day and so on. And really that reached a crescendo in March and April. But then we started to see worldwide demand start to pick up. So, so now you're starting to see a little bit of divergence. Is this a recovery that can be sustained? Seems like it might be a pretty good chance of that. But there also, as we've always seen, there's, you know, some unclear predictors going forward. But we've had a very good run. Do you anticipate, I mean, what everybody you talk to and are looking that when I talk to investment people, there's the word correction mm -hmm. comes out of their mouth pretty quickly. Will this be a correction that could cause any difficulty or do you, is the thought process, it would just be sort of a moderate downturn? Well, I think a correction is is probably likely. And, you know, if you talk to a lot of the sort of pundits, they'll say seven years on and a bull market is kind of long in the tooth. We're starting to see some of the uh, divergence between the tech stocks and the transportation stocks. There's a big divergence there. So it's not a broadly supported market rise at this point. But on the other hand, you, you know, before there was a lot of euphoria that seemed to be explaining why the market was running up and a lot of momentum 
momentum, uh, particularly in the tech stocks. Uh, but, but now you're starting to see, as I said, that global recovery in the economy. You've had China's reported better numbers, and Europe is certainly doing better than, than a lot of, uh, you know, have predicted. It's funny, you don't even hear about the Italian election, which was one of the big concerns a few months ago, uh, you know, whether Italia, Italy was going to drop out of, out of the EU and whether that would throw the EU into a tailspin. So, so I think um, a correction is not unlikely, but there's really nothing on the horizon we see right now that indicates it's imminent. State Treasurer Mark Gordon visiting with us. Uh, so a couple of things to talk about. When we were talking with you last year at this time, uh, it wasn't as good of news as we had had in previous years. But a lot of things were going on at that time. One of the things the state had been looking to do was to pass constitutional amendment, give you a little more power, uh, let you have a little more flexibility in in what you're able to do, and maybe obviously generate some more revenue for the state. You've that passed. You got a chance to start working on that. Uh, So how is that all going? And when you look at the market being the way it is and your ability to have a few more resources, is that been working out for us? It has, Bob. But there's, you know, one of the problems is we're um, we're a lot of money. Number one, uh, number two, um, you know, we we worked very hard to get the back office in place, the people that do the accounting and so on, uh, to make sure that we could take advantage of this sort of broader asset set of asset allocations that we could. Uh, that we could put in place. And that's just a slow process. You know, you have to go through personnel. You, you have to be approved in that. Uh, there's been a few retirements that we've, that we've had. Uh, but, but in order to do those things, we had to make sure we had the apparatus right, the systems right, and that just takes longer than we've wanted. So we've been able to bring a bunch of stuff in-house. We've, uh, we've done extremely well in our internal portfolio. Patrick Fleming, former professor here at UW, uh, has been running that exceedingly well, and we're starting now to build out the other programs. As you look at uh, – I'm, I'm hearing all kinds of reports about capital gains and, <laughs> and how much money we might make. We might even be able to sell stocks and make – extra dough. Um, are, are those reports accurate? Um, yeah. I mean, you know, right now uh, in unrealized gains, we're, we're uh, right around $900 million, which is, which is extraordinary. But I think people need to remember that just because they're unrealized gains doesn't mean you can sell them uh, immediately. We have a very disciplined process. Um, we have a, a rebalancing policy. That's a very important part of any investment program. Uh, you, you set an asset allocation, and I think earlier this year, uh, you and I spoke a little bit about what we were trying to do there. But you set an asset allocation to make sure that you take the, uh, you, you set yourself up to make the take the best advantage of the markets as they present you. So if you're, uh, let's say, 50% stocks, uh, as the Permanent Mineral Trust Fund was, if we suddenly get to 70% stocks, well, statutorily, that would have been difficult for us. Um, but it's also out of our asset allocation. And the temptation is always to reach for those gains. Uh, and that's where you get caught. Uh, it's very short term. So long we, we take advantage of the market run-ups when they happen. We realize those gains. That's why we made about 400 or actually $222 million in capital gains this year realized uh, on top of the $400 million that we made dividends and interest. Can I ask you, so you get to participate, or at least your office does, gets to participate in the consensus revenue estimating group, and then you all talk about all these things. When you look at what's what you see um, – We've had quite a little discussion already about the need for more revenue in sure. this state and, and tax increases. I, I'm wondering if there aren't people that are looking at this and go, man, maybe we don't need any of that stuff. <laughs> Well, you know, I, I, I think that's always the that's always the temptation. I mean, it's always you know, woo, we made it. You know, we've 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 had another uh, windfall, and and so living windfall to windfall is 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 not a particularly successful strategy. I'll give you just a little bit of history. You know, to, in in two years or three years ago, uh, fiscal year. Three years ago, we made over $1.1 billion in investment income, including gains. Uh, last year, we were uh, 
20, 20 million short. And, and, you know, in the capital gains alone, that was a, a, about a $600 million swing, uh, which on top of the revenue shortfalls and everything else meant that we had the huge problems we did. I think long-term, what, I can, what I'm concerned about with, with uh, mineral revenues is we know that oil and gas is a very volatile market. We know that coal is kind of okay, but it's certainly struggling a little bit. Renewables, I hate to say it, but renewables used to be 2%. They're now north of 7% of our energy supply. Uh, you know, the picture is, is, is a little bit one that we want to take a cautious look at the future and set our funds up to do the best they can for long term. And so as you look at additional revenues, like mm-hmm. a tax. That's that's mm-hmm. a better word for it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Revenue enhancement? <laughs> Don't. <laughs> your message might be, take a good look at this stuff um, yeah. so we can even out our revenue picture. That's a, that's exactly right. Now the state, uh, you know, has has from time to time tried to do this. I think Cynthia Lummis, uh, when she was treasurer, spent a lot of time making sure that the state had uh, what we, what we call spending policies, and the idea there was that the state would spend within a predictable. Uh, range, say 5%, which is what it was. And uh, it would build up a reserve account that could meet uh, the shortfalls when that happened. That reserve account got pretty big. It got pretty enticing. And a couple of people reached in and grabbed some of that reserve account. And and that's always the temptation. We're going to spend ahead of, of what we want. We really need to get disciplined about that spending. You know, when we borrow from ourselves at 0%, and we don't recognize the inflationary erosion, we are appropriating from our permanent funds. Mark Gordon, always a pleasure chatting with you. He's your state treasurer, and thank you. Thank you. spent time in Rock Springs, you may have had a hard time finding your way around its winding blocks and sudden buttes. The city's sprawl is a turnoff for some, and the historic downtown area is isolated from Interstate 80. Rock Springs is one of several communities in Wyoming trying to re-energize their downtowns through a program called Main Street. Wyoming Public Radio's Alana Elder reports Rock Springs' history as a coal town is a benefit and an obstacle to these efforts. Urban Renewal Agency Director Chad Banks is leading a group of Rock Springs residents through a tunnel. We're beneath the train tracks that break the downtown business district in half. This underpass doubles as an art gallery, meant to advertise local artists and lure people to explore both sides of the railroad. The railroad gave Rock Springs its start as a coal town. Local mines fueled the trains that reached the area in the 1860s. Public Services Director Amy Allen says the city's layout matches the scatter of those original mines. The coal camps, as they were called, number one, number two, number six, number four, those were the numbers of the mines that people worked in. So they didn't have vehicles, not a lot of transportation, so they lived close to where the mine entrances were, so nothing was square or planned or straight. That's why Rock Springs looks, to be polite, a little eclectic compared to other communities. The mine's influence on planning is so significant that Allen says some old-timers still call certain parts of town by mine numbers, like four and six. And the coal business shaped the town's culture, attracting immigrants recruited by Union Pacific. The town boasts on its website and entrance sign that its population once included 56 nationalities. In other words, it's a blue-collar town that, due to the energy industry, has problems with booms and busts. Allen says the first sign of that was when the Jim Bridger power plant opened in the 1970s. Then the White Mountain Mall was built on available land that was probably close to an interstate intersection. Box stores and new developments filled in the space between the mall and the downtown, and I-80 distracted people from the city's historic hub. But the economic burst didn't last forever, and Allen says the city had to get better at planning for booms and busts in the decades that followed. 
In the 1980s, Chad Banks says they started using abandoned mine lands funds to restore old buildings downtown, like the city hall and the depot. A lot of Rock Springs is undermined. There are coal shafts under almost every building down here. Um, and so some of the money was supposed to come back to the communities that are impacted by mining, and that's how that was done. Oh, and the downtown is in a floodplain. All of this has been a challenge to get the downtown to be the centerpiece of the community. Banks believes it's possible, and he says it's worth the trouble. In all the conferences I go to, they always talk about your downtown as sort of your front door. This is the image of your community, and, and a lot of developers want to see how you're taking care of your downtown because that reflects how well your community is as, as a whole. Banks oversees public art projects like the murals, lunchtime concerts, and a farmer's market, which is happening the same evening as his mural tour. These days, downtown looks alive, despite a number of empty storefronts collecting pigeon poop until banks can find a developer willing to restore them. In front of the old bank building that's been sitting uninhabited for about 30 years, Banks tells me it's often more expensive to rehabilitate a building than to construct a new one. Especially a building this size, you know, we're looking at about $4.2 million to restore this building. You could build something with comparable square footage for less. A big part of Banks' job involves working with businesses. He doles out grants so they can renovate the fronts of their buildings. In past years, he gave out loans to help them pay rent, but he says recent budget cuts have stalled that program. Banks worked with Heidi Harvey to find a new place for her natural medicine shop that was available when her old lease ended. Harvey says the new downtown location has helped her survive as a luxury store that opened not long before the recession. My other location was Seek to Find. You know, there was physical therapy on one side and Rena Center on the other. So overall, I, I do have more foot traffic. Sam Malicote is walking with his kids by the mall. He just moved to town to work at the Trona Mine, and he says he loves the tight-knit community and access to the outdoors. But downtown didn't factor into his decision to move here. You know, I go to the parks and stuff like that, but, you know, no more than anywhere else. Banks is determined to make the downtown more relevant. On the mural tour, he explains plans to beautify one bare wall and the dirt lot in front of it. Up, do some minimal landscaping and gravel, and then put in a whole miniature golf course that people can play for free. So Banks is hoping to make people so excited about downtown that developers will seek him out to fill those empty buildings. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Alana Elder. Stay with us as we cast our gaze towards the stars. Stories about alien life and the solar eclipse are ahead on Open Spaces. This is Open Spaces. From Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Bob Back. And I'm Melody Edwards. Our next conversation is with a woman who struggled her entire career with a double whammy. Not only was she one of just a handful of women in her scientific field, but that field was the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, or SETI, something most people consider the stuff of comic books. Tartar's daughter works for the National Outdoor Leadership School, or Knowles. And while she was visiting her, she spoke to a sold-out audience at the Lander High School the night before the solar eclipse. I sat down with her. My mother would dress me in these beautiful starched dresses and Mary Janes and little socks with, with ruffles around the ankles. And my father would take me camping and hunting and fishing. And so in our family photograph album, there are countless pictures of me holding up a huge fish dressed in a beautiful pinafore and outfit, right? So I had this duality growing up, and uh, she said I should be learning how to do girl things, and that just didn't go down well with me. And my dad and I had this conversation, and he did, decided that, well, I guess, I guess if you're willing to work hard enough, you can do whatever you want to be. And so I said, okay, I'm going to be an engineer, only because that was a really male thing, and that was all I could think of. I didn't know what an engineer was at the time. But in fact, my dad sadly died when I was 12, and that left me with um, a bit of real stubbornness. I want to do this for my dad, and also taught me a, a lesson we all need to learn. It's a pretty hard way to learn it, but that's carpe diem, right? If an opportunity presents itself, grab it. 
because it's not necessarily going to be there tomorrow. Um, so I went to engineering school, and I got an engineering physics degree, and I was the only woman in my class of 300, and there were lots of challenges involved with that, but I got a very good education, and I stumbled on a course on star formation. Turns out stars have life cycles. They're born, they live, they die. I found this fascinating. And so then I changed to astronomy and got a PhD in, in astrophysics. And then one day um, an astronomer came and recruited me to work on his SETI project. And so the course of your career has been kind of searching for this signal. Can you talk a little bit more about what it is that um, you're kind of been listening for, looking for? Well, we call um, the program that I've worked on SETI, but that's actually a misnomer because we don't know how to detect intelligence across the room, right, much less across the stars. But what we're looking for is technology. So we're look, we use technology as a proxy for intelligence. We're looking for someone out there who's used technology to modify their environment in some way that we can detect with the tools that we have today um, and recognize that this is not natural. We're looking for engineered signals. Over the course of your career, what are the big successes that you're seeing in some of those possibilities that are, have been built upon and built upon along the course of your career? Well, over my career, there have been two extraordinary game changers. So when I was a student, we didn't know about any planets except those in our own solar system. And furthermore, we didn't really understand how planets formed. One theory would have made planets very, very rare. Turns out that's not the way planets form. We've learned a lot since then, and planets are everywhere. Planets are really the rule rather than the exception. So when a star forms, it's going to have planets around there. That means there's a lot of real estate out there. Okay, so now the second game changer is something that we call extremophiles, organisms that live in environments that would be impossible for you and I. But organisms have found a way over millions, sometimes billions of years of evolution to fit in very well to all those extreme environments. They're very happy there. It's only us humans that need such a, a narrow range of environmental conditions to make us happy. And it's another example where our ego is getting in the way of reality. We still use phrases like the ascent of man, the pinnacle of evolution. That's not the way it is out there. We're just one small twig on a very large tree of life that is populated with all these wonderful other organisms. Um, I have to ask about uh, Carl Sagan's book, Contact, and just, I'd love to have you tell me just, you know, how, how you collaborated with his process of writing that story, what you think about it. When Carl was first writing the book, Carl said, oh, come on up to the house, we're having a cocktail party this evening. And when I got there, he and Andrew and his wife, they, they sort of took me inside and they said, well, Carl's writing this science fiction book. And I said, yeah, I know. The New York Times told us last weekend what he got as an advance. And, and we're all so jealous. It's impossible, right? And Annie said, well, you know, there may be somebody in the book that you think you recognize, but I think you're going to like her. And I said, oh, okay. I said, here's the deal. Just make sure that she doesn't eat ice cream cones for lunch, and then nobody's going to think it's me, because that was the kind of thing that everybody joked around about, and that was sort of my iconic uh, persona, ice cream cones for lunch. Well, El Ellie Arriway did not eat ice cream cones for lunch. Nevertheless, there are certain familiarities, and it's because you know, for women who ended up being educated and surviving the pipeline to go into a male-dominated profession of the sciences. I'm pretty much prototypical of many of those women. Yeah, and, and you mentioned that, that he was able to kind of capture those challenges that women face as they're trying to move through these careers and 
Uh, was that something that you saw, where, the, where women were sort of helping each other along as, as you encountered other women in the sciences? Actually, that's not what I saw early on. I saw exactly the opposite, that women um, who had succeeded where many others had failed kind of had this, well, I'm here now, and I enjoy being the queen bee, right? And I'm just going to pull up the ladder and make sure I don't get, I don't have any competition. That happened early on, and that was bad, and that's one of the things that I rec recognized. We actually have to work actively to make things better. We really need to be kinder to other women. Can you talk a little bit about your talk that you're going to be giving tonight? Uh, it's called um, The Solar Eclipse, The Universe, and You. Right. Uh, tell me a little bit about what you plan to kind of convey to people on the night before the eclipse. Well. I wanted people to understand how intimately they are connected with this very vast and old universe. And it seemed to me the opportunity of an eclipse, which is such a powerful uh, natural occurrence to be able to interact with, um, it gives an opportunity to talk about the fact that um, 500 million years from now, we won't have any total solar eclipses anymore. The moon will have moved too far away from the Earth. But as we think about who we are and how we fit into the cosmos, it's really important to expand our perspective. We are literally made of star stuff. It's not just a fancy saying by Carl Sagan, it's, it's the truth, that's, that's what we are. And the fact, therefore, it's not impossible or implausible that there might be other creatures out there also made of star stuff and talk a little bit about the work that we're trying to do to um, discover them. If you missed astronomer Jill Tarter's talk in Lander, you can also listen to her TED Talk. We have a link at wyomingpublicmedia.org. People have been making preparations for years to travel hundreds of miles to see the 2017 total solar eclipse. In Casper, where thousands of people showed up, skies were clear and views under the path of totality were once in a lifetime. Wyoming Public Radio's Maggie Mullen has more. It's the day before the eclipse, and downtown Casper is hard to recognize. Second Street has been closed off to traffic, and hundreds of pedestrians are checking out the food vendors and the many different kinds of Eclipse swag being sold. Resident and vendor Brooke Hopkins says the most coveted item is going fast. We still have some Eclipse glasses left. Not many, but for $5 we have them. On one corner, a map of the world has been set out where visitors can use pushpins to mark where they traveled from. Executive Director of the Wyoming Eclipse Festival, Anna Wilcox, says it's amazing to look at. It really makes it real when you see that. When people said international or from everywhere, everyone rolled their eyes at us. You can actually look and see they are from everywhere. Further down the street, Chapters Tattoo owner Craig Nigel is standing outside his shop. He says it's been a busy weekend and a lot of people have taken advantage of his Eclipse Tattoo Special. We got like five or six sheets of flash designs. We just take them as they come. Got four artists throwing down ink in there. We've been doing, each of us have done at least six tattoos a day, last two days. Downtown's festivities go on late into the evening Sunday as more and more people make their way into Casper. The morning of the big day, Backwards Distillery's parking lot is full of license plates from all over the country. Louisiana, Kansas, California, Maine, and a bunch from Colorado and Wyoming too. On the distillery's front lawn, about 100 people have set up their blankets and lawn chairs. This was one of the few ticketed events in Casper. Visitor April Rosenthal says she didn't mind paying if she knew it meant she and her husband Paul would have a reserve spot. They're from Oregon, but April says they arrived in Casper extra early. We, we've been here for a month waiting for the eclipse. We came here specifically for the eclipse. And I'm glad that we did because this is a great town. Shortly after the first bite, when the moon touches the sun's edge, Paul pulls a colander out of his bag to look at how the shadows are changing. See the crescents? Oh, wow. So what would usually be a circle is now yes. a crescent. Yes. The eclipse is fast approaching totality, and the sun has shrunk down to a sliver. I joined a group of friends that drove up that morning from Laramie. 
couple of them have put on extra layers since temperatures have cooled. The air is buzzing and some people are giddy. I know, everybody That's is. That's how I feel. It's like a nervous giggle. It's exactly how I feel. This is crazy. Totality is about a minute away and the sky has darkened to a deep blue twilight. It's happening. It's eclipsing. As the last bit of the sun's sliver shrinks away, the corona appears. Small beads of light dance around the sun before fading away, with the final bead brightening and expanding into the diamond ring effect. Oh, that's crazy. That is the craziest thing I've ever seen. We take off our glasses, and the moon is now a dark circle, and the sun a glowing white halo. The horizon is the color of a peach. Like, look around, that's crazy. Look at the hot air balloon. <laughs> Pretty spectacular. There's nothing to do but just look around in total awe. This is so beautiful. Oh my god. It is, it just turned to sunset all of a sudden. Totality ends and we put our glasses back on. Yeah, that was so cool. For some of the Eclipse viewers, it was a highly emotional experience. It was amazing. It was amazing. It, was amazing. it made me cry. Like we didn't know if it was age or what. Yeah. I'm like, is it this or is it age? Yeah. I don't know. I think it's because something that you'll see once in a lifetime. April Rosenthal, the visitor who has been waiting for the Eclipse in Casper for a month, says she and her husband are already making plans for the next one. Once you see one, you got to see another. <laughs> Is that what you're feeling right now? Yeah, oh yeah. 2024, yeah. Then somebody puts on Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. Fewer people are looking to the sky, but everyone is smiling. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Maggie Mullen. Across the state, and in an area even smaller and less frequented than Casper, Goshen County welcomed more than 100,000 visitors for the eclipse. They came to set up tents and campers in anticipation and take part in local festivities. Wyoming Public Radio's Cooper McKim got a feel for the excitement leading up to the solar event. Cooper, climb in the back. Okay. Cooper's in the back. Okay. Pop in. You're first one. A small plane takes Goshen County Commissioner Wally Walski over the area to see how much traffic is starting to pile up and how busy campsites are. Normally there wouldn't be anybody out there camping, but there was little pockets here and there. This is brand new for Goshen County. Most of the time people drive through here to go someplace, and right now this is a de destination for a lot of people for tomorrow. It's 8 p.m. now and getting dark. Just down the road in Torrington, a two-day street festival is wrapping up. I mean, we've got the bouncy houses over there. Well, I guess they're down now. And we have a barbecue grill over there. We have the ice cream truck, which is local. It's 9.30 and pitch blackout at the Fort Laramie B&B. People are walking with their headlamps to a small field of multicolored tents, likely getting a good night's sleep before the eclipse. Others are looking through a telescope to take advantage of the clear sky. Lauren Spencer. I'm actually a student at the University of Montana. I'm studying computational physics there. And I'm here with a group from Montana Space Grant Consortium doing some research for the eclipse. So we can see the, the Milky Way coming up bright above us. This is called the Ring Nebula. Let me focus in just a little bit. And I'm going to have somebody go ahead and step up here and take a look at it. The next morning, Kathy Tollefson is finishing serving up breakfast. She's the owner of the B&B. Ordinarily, we have a very quiet little B&B with not too much activity. But you drive in today, and there's uh, tents and RVs and campers everywhere. This is a, an event of a lifetime, and, and you can feel the energy in the air. You know, it's just like everybody's about five feet off the ground just waiting for this event. 44 students and staff are running around the B&B. They're with the Montana Space Grant Consortium, a NASA-funded program. They're helping fill 24 balloons to measure temperature, pressure, and humidity under the shadow of the moon. Here's Doug Brueger, a mentor for the program. In order to really understand the effect of the eclipse, we've been launching those radio sons from three different sites 
on a transect that's across the path of totality regularly every six hours for the past couple of days. It's nearly 10.19 now, just three minutes before the partial eclipse begins. A family is putting on their eclipse glasses as the moon just touches the edge of the sun. Your son Grady explains. There's a little bite out of it. It's just starting. Nearby, physics student Lauren Spencer says that when totality strikes, Orion's belt will be visible. I'm thinking that Venus and uh, Mercury may be visible when we get to totality. I've never seen totality. <laughs> so <We're> pretty exciting. <laughs> It's now 11.20, only 26 minutes from totality. A group of about 10 students and staff, along with other random visitors, are standing around, waiting. Some onlookers say the air is already starting to look different, almost purple. It's getting cooler. I start to feel goosebumps coming up. Just Yeah, the temperature and the, and the light changing is just like nothing I've ever seen before. It's almost like I don't have my eyes all the way open or all the way focused. Or... See why people chase eclipses now. That's crazy. You look dumbstruck. I am. That's Amy McDonald. She's wiping tears from her eyes. Lauren Spencer is also wiping away tears. I can't talk. They <laughs> say different things will cause different people to become emotional. <laughs> Just the, the aspect that humans knew that was coming. The human mind is doing so much. You know, we're, we're under, coming to understand the universe around us in ways we could never have imagined. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Cooper McKim. To wrap up the show, we'll hear about what cultural programs at the University of Wyoming has planned for the fall 2017 semester. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. From Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. With the start of school comes the start of a number of cultural programs at the University of Wyoming. Janelle Fletcher is the director of what is now called UW Presents, and she joins me to discuss the fall semester of programs. We've got the Dance Theater of Harlem visiting. They are one of the world's most acclaimed companies um, doing contemporary ballet. That's a big coup for the university to host them. On campus, um, we are bringing in the original rock and roll photographer to speak and show his photos. Uh, the Peking Acrobats will be visiting us in the spring. That is Cirque, the um, sort of Chinese way. It is the original company, and we got very lucky that they just had a date open. And um, also in the spring, we will bring in Colin Rockery and Brad Sherwood, their show called uh, Scared Scriptless, which is often better known, or they're better known from Whose Line Is It Anyway? Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, the breakdown, maybe this fall schedule for folks. And as you touched on, on September 29th, the Dance mm -hmm. Theater of Harlem will be here. This is a ballet group? That is correct. They are a contemporary ballet group based in Harlem. Um, and they will come and they will actually world premiere a work um, that will be worked on with the students here. They are in residency with the Department of Theater and Dance through the Eminent Artist in Residence program. They will world premiere that work in Laramie. So it's a really rare and exciting opportunity. Now, how often have you bought, brought in a photographer or somebody like that? We have never done that. And it was sort of a strange discovery. I was speaking with his agent and um, got the, the scoop. Essentially, Ethan was a um, photography student in London, and he was out taking photos for an assignment, and a gentleman walked up to him and asked if he would mind taking his photo, and that gentleman happened to be Mick Jagger. So uh, Ethan has a whole lifetime of touring with the Beatles, the Rolling Stones. He photographed for The Who, and so he will come and play music and talk about all the photographs, the history behind the ones you see, and uh, show a lot that you've never seen, and talk about what it was like to tour with the Stones for so long. Now, and that'll be a tremendous thing, and, th and that'll be coming up as well. And then 
the Reduced Shakespeare Company. That sounds like that might be fun. Yeah, they're a stitch. Um, they're very well known for plays like The Complete Works of William Shakespeare, Abridged, um, The Entire History of Sports, Abridged. So they are satirical comedy, and they will perform twice, once on a Friday night and once uh, the Saturday afternoon. We will book in that CSU game uh, that weekend. And they're very, very funny, and it gives us a chance to put an event in the new Thrust Theater that's in the Buchanan Center for the Performing Arts, which is a spectacular venue. So we really encourage people to see both the show uh, because it's funny and because the venue is so great. And then you're, you're going to wrap up at least this portion of the season with the By and By and Sally George. What What is that? So the By and By and Sally and George are two different uh, bluegrass, I guess you could call them bluegrass, folk, Americana groups. Uh, one of them has a member, well, they each have a member from Laramie who actually happened to be brother and sister. Um, Jacob Means is in the By and By and Shelby Means is uh, part of Sally and George. So it's sort of a homecoming concert plus a bluegrass Americana extravaganza. They'll play together. They'll play separately. And we're going to do that at the historic Griffin Theater this year. We've partnered with them, and they've so graciously allowed us to use their space for something that's just a little bit different uh, in terms of atmosphere. How do you go about getting your acts here? Uh, that's a great question. A lot of it is word of mouth. We talk to other presenters who are across across the country who they've had um, in their venues and who are you know good artists to work with, as well as who sell well, obviously. Um, and then I, you know, visit a couple of conferences every year where I meet with agents and we learn about what is, in fact, crossing the country um, and what's available. And we we make attempts to sort of take those things and then put them together with presenters in Wyoming and Colorado to make them affordable. Now you've changed your name. It used to be Cultural Programs. Now it's UW Presents. We are UW Presents. What we did was uh, we have a committee um, and the, the chair of that committee is actually Dean Paula Lutz. And through her great guidance, we um, decided that we were going to change to a name that encompassed um, or could encompass sort of a broader scope of programming. Um, and we just felt like a name like UW Presents was sort of of a, a better way to, to plug those programs in. Okay. And so, of course, you'll have a full spring schedule. We'll talk about that later in the year. Uh, tell me about tickets. How do folks get these? Uh, you can buy those tickets by calling the Buchanan Center for the Performing Arts box office. That number is 307-766-6666. Our new website will be up and running hopefully within the next week. The forms will be downloadable there. You can buy season tickets in, in different pa- packages as well as tickets for individual events. Janelle Fletcher, it's always an honor to have you on our program. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Bob. Thank you for listening to this edition of Open Spaces. If you'd like to hear the entire program or individual segments, go to our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org. We'd love it if you liked our Wyoming Public Radio News Facebook page. And if you have good story ideas, you can submit those through our Facebook page or our website. Anna Rader is our web editor. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.